You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Stories of Jesus, New Life, and a New Family. In this series, we see that those who respond to the stories of Jesus are welcomed into the family of God, receiving new identity, new power, and new purpose. Now hear the word of the Lord. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun, and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It is good to see you guys. Uh, My name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, welcome. It's a good day to visit. We got a new series starting, Stories of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is going to tell us some stories. So before getting into the sermon today, I need a little bit of a disclaimer. I'm going to talk about my children for a second, but it's a serious matter. I asked my kids if I could talk about this, and they gave me kind of a lukewarm, not-so-sure response. Some of you know who my children are. Some of you don't. If you know my children, don't go talking to this about them, okay? That's weird. Your dad said this, and they're like, who's the stranger that knows this kind of... It's not quite a secret thing, but it's just it's a serious issue in my family. But it works well for the sermon, I think, so I don't know if it's good or not. But I want... Can we just all be in accord? You're not going to go talk to my kids about what I'm about to talk to you guys about? Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Okay. So ages, I've got a six-year-old, a four-year-old, who's um, she's going to be five in like two weeks, and then a, a one-year-old. And the, the six and the four-year-old often will get scared right before bedtime. And I don't know if it's actually fear or if it's clever schemes of delaying going to bed that the parents say amen. Amen. You know, amen, right? So here's the deal. We have some serious problems, and the biggest fear, scary problem with my six-year-old and my four-year-old is this creature named the billy goat. And you said, where did they learn about the billy goat? I have no idea where the billy goat came from. It is a creature, slash demon, slash monster, it's the billy goat, and it invades their room at night. And they have various opinions on what the billy goat does, what the motives and the, the, you know, the end goal of the billy goat's behavior is. Uh, Don't go asking them about that because, you know, some of it's kind of morbid. I don't know. Kids make up weird stuff. The billy goat comes in but he only comes in if the room is dark and if they're asleep. You know? So naturally, if we keep playing and leave the lights on, we don't have to worry about the billy goat. Um, and I have tried many ways of navigating the billy goat conflict in my home. I've tried rationalizing with them uh, to the point where one point... Uh, This was several weeks ago. My daughter looked at me, and she goes, Dad, the billy goat isn't even real. Jeez. (laughs) You know, I was trying to, like, give these, like, rational explanations for everything we've done. Uh, So the rational approach to dealing with the billy goat hasn't really worked. Um, 
I've tried spiritualizing it, where we've all gotten in the, on our knees in the, in the middle of their room holding hands, and I'm praying, Lord, send your angels down with their fiery swords to protect this room from the threats of the enemy. Bind up the strong man and cast him out, and you're like doing all that kind of Pentecostal-y stuff. And the, my kids are looking at me like, are angels have swords with fire? Will they set the house on fire? And I'm trying to explain to them the supernatural realm and the heavenly realm versus the earthly realm. And so that, that didn't work. Um, We've, uh, we've put candles in their room for extra light. Not real candles, okay? Not, mind you, electric candles with a little moving thing. Uh, and then we put uh, Enya's Shepherd Moon album on. Y'all, that's a great sleep record. Um, so my point is we've tried lots of different tactics, and I, wouldn't, I would say none of them have been home runs. Uh, some have worked with varying degrees of success, and somehow the billy goat keeps coming back and it, it hasn't removed the fear of the billy goat. Um, fear not, dear congregation, um, because I have found a trick. And here's some next-level parenting for you, okay? So listen, I'm pre- I feel pretty confident about this strategy because it works every time, and every time we've done this, the billy goat has appeared less and less and less. So the way it works is the kids will start shouting, not like screaming in fear, but they'll be demanding my presence in the room, right? And so my... Six-year-old and four-year-old share a room. They both have a twin bed in it. And when they're afraid of the billy goat, they have to get in the same bed. And when they're afraid of the billy goat together, then dad has to get in the bed with them to go through our scare tactics. So if you can, I'm not a small human, right? Like six foot, six one-ish. And, and so imagine me laying, I'm laying on my side because it's a twin bed. And in front of me is my four-year-old and behind me is my six-year-old. And I got to have like this and we're strategizing what to do with about the billy goat. We're crammed in, and they're hemming and hawing about the billy goat, and nothing will work. And then I'll say, hey, guys, do you want to hear a story from when you were a baby? And they'll go, ooh, what kind of story? Or I'll say, do you want to hear a story about when Pappy was in the National Guard? And they'll be like, National Guard, Pappy, what? I'll, I'll say, do you want to hear a story about fill in the blank? And, and they, they perk up as though a switch were flipped, their eyes move on to me and the worries of the billy goat go back to being kind of a child stay awake longer fantasy. I don't, I don't really believe my children have a spiritual problem. I don't think the billy goat is an actual demon who's spiritually invading my home. Um, they don't have a rational problem. Right? They, they can confess that the billy goat isn't real. Uh, I think what they have is a failure of imagination. They, their vision, their imagination gets fixated somewhere and they can't see around it. Have you ever had that happen? Or you fall in love with a house or you fall in love with a car and none of the arguments work. You know you can't afford it. Here's the secret to having more money or have building wealth, I think, is don't buy stuff you can't afford. <laughs> or to take it one step more intense, spend less than you make. And over time, you will have more money. But, or, you know, how do you lose weight? Burn more calories than you eat. Ah, you're welcome, right? Like, these aren't revolutionary concepts, but our eyes, our visions get focused on somewhere. You ever been in a situation you just can't imagine things being any different? And you feel hopeless? And it's, it's almost like you're hypnotized staring at this thing. That's the effect the billy goat has had on my kids where they're just honed in on it. It's a, it's a failure of imagination. Stories have a way of sneaking around your vision and captivating your imaginations. 
Stories have a way of sneaking around your rational mind, sneaking around the things you're kind of consciously aware of and doing something in you. You ever found yourself, I'm, my family has a slight Disney problem, you ever found yourself in the middle of a Disney movie crying unexpectedly or something happens and you're like, oh my gosh. I, we had our staff Christmas party back around Christmas time and uh, there's a song from the new Frozen 2 record that I would put on like my all-time worship hits list. Uh, so I'll just, whatever, I'm super embarrassed right now. It's the song Show Yourself, where I'm like, this is my prayer life. And I'm driving home at 12 o'clock at night listening to Elsa sing Show Yourself, sobbing. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. You know, these stories have a way of sneaking behind our defenses, stirring our imaginations, and changing our focus. There's something oddly powerful about stories. They go places we don't realize and they do something that is not obvious to us. I mean, we can resist advice in good sense over and over and over again, which some of you have, maybe with your finances, maybe with your health. Um, isn't it interesting when you think about all the ways humans have taught other humans how to live through the years, the most enduring ways are things like Aesop's fables. How will we teach morality and lessons to our children? We're going to tell them stories, fairy tales that have a lesson to them. Isn't it interesting that, so we here, if you're visiting with us, we believe the Bible, we believe all of the doctrines about the Bible, right? Like it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's clear, it's reliable, all these kinds of things. We think it's authoritative, we think it's the Word of God. This is God's message to His people. And did you, do you realize that two-thirds of this book, it's something like 64 or 63% of this book are stories and songs, God didn't, God didn't send us an instruction manual as much as he sent us a story and songbook. What does that say about the power of stories and the way that God has wired us as humans? Stories get inside of us, behind our rational thoughts, and they change us. We're at a very critical point in the ministry of Jesus in chapter 13. When we left our series on Matthew um, back whatever it was, a couple months ago, uh, a plot had been hatched to kill Jesus. The religious people, they've just had enough of it, and they can't tolerate him anymore, so they're plotting to kill him. And now, in chapter 13, Jesus begins teaching by telling stories. As we'll see in a few weeks, Jesus knows opposition is coming even from his family, he knows that his cousin is going to be executed. He knows what's waiting for him in Jerusalem. So to prepare his disciples for the work that's to come, to, to really do the, the deep transformation that they need in their souls, to help them experience a new way of life and a new family, Jesus tells stories. We call the stories of Jesus parables. Parables are... It's not quite fair to call a parable a story. There's a little bit more going on with the kind of genre of parable than just mere once upon a time storytelling. They're, they're intended to wake us up in some ways, to stimulate our conscience, to move us towards action. But what's somewhat unique about parables is they do this all without us realizing it. They, they move us without being necessarily obvious. So maybe to put it a little more straightforward, Parables are stories to soak in and mull over. They're, they're stories to sip slowly, um, to consider, to ask, who do I feel like in this story? 
Who do I identify with in this story? How is this a story inviting me to respond? And it may not always be obvious or direct. I think if, if we approach the parables and stories of Jesus this way, if we allow them to come in and root around, we will change, I think, before we're even aware of it. So this parable, which often is called the parable of the sower that was read for us, in this section, we'll get more into some of the structure of this in the next few weeks. It's called the head parable. And what that means is this parable gives an interpretive grid for all of the other parables that are about to come here. So this says something about how we're to understand all of the other stories. So this sets kind of the general framework, and all of the other stories are going to be interpreted in light of this story. It gives direction and definition to all the other ones. So he begins by looking to a crowd and shouting to them, look. So leave it there for a second. That's not a, that's a song. That's Chris Tomlin's song. There it is. Look. And I put the look in brackets because um, English translations will put this, will usually say listen. And I think this is a failure of imagination. I don't like doing this just to prove to you guys every so often I went to seminary. The, work on, the word that we translate there is behold. And it's strange if I were to stand up and give you guys a lesson, say you showed up to a, a Bible study at our church and I said, behold. And it's like, behold what? We're looking at the Bible or we're sitting here listening. Jesus is saying behold because that's an imagination word. He's saying, I want you to imagine this in your head. Look as though you were looking and watching this play out before you. Look like we're watching a movie. He says, look, a farmer went out to plant some seeds. And you, we read the rest of the story. So he's He's saying, imagine in your minds that a farmer went out and he's, he's throwing seeds around. He's trying to appeal to their imaginations. And if you remember the story, or you can go home and mull over this story, if you imagine these, this scene in your mind, I think one of the first reactions you'll probably have is what a bad farmer this is. Because, so I want you to imagine... You saw a farmer. Some of you are farmers, and you can imagine this. Imagine you go after church, and out on Eakin Avenue, right down the middle of the street, is some farmer with two big sacks of seed, and he's just like tossing seed on the road. You'd be like, that ain't where seed goes, my man. <laughs> you know, that's where this farmer's throwing seed. He's throwing seed in soil, which is like good for you, but he's throwing it on roads, and he's throwing it in rocks, and he's throwing it in bushes. You see, he's the Oprah of seed farming, right? Like, you get seed, and you get seed, and you get... He's just throwing it everywhere. He seems reckless and strange, planting on roads. Now, as the Jewish people who heard this story were thinking about it later, I've been wondering a lot about how would it make them feel, thinking about the farmer throwing seed around this way. At the end of chapter 12, if, if you've forgotten, you, you can go read it. It's in your Bible. It's in every Bible. At the end of chapter 12, Jesus, in essence, says the family of God are the people who obey the will of God, uh, which would have been a very troublesome statement for Jewish people. And now he's talking about this farmer who's throwing seed everywhere. See, before the time of Jesus, there was one real specific way to be Jewish or to become Jewish, and that was to be born into a Jewish family. You had to have Jewish blood in your veins. You had to come from certain stock, a specific soil. The invitation to be in God's family went to a chosen people who were meant to be isolated. 
And the Old Testament is filled with strange stories of, trying to people, of people trying to get in. And there's a story of a king who wants to worship the God of Israel, and to do so, he fills a wagon of dirt and takes it home with him because he can only worship God on the certain dirt from the certain place. Like, it was very specific. Where do you, how do you become Jewish? Who can become Jewish? Where can you be Jewish? But now, you hear of a man claiming to be the son of God, saying to be in the family of God or part of the people of God. You just have to do the will of God. And then he follows that by telling a story about a farmer who's just throwing seed everywhere. The story is trying to show us that whatever this seed is, it goes everywhere. Because the family of God is now open to all people, all kinds of people. I think the story gets a little more interesting than that. That's a, like, that's a, that, just that part of the story was enough to get Jesus killed. But it, I think it gets more revolutionary and uncomfortable from there. Not only does the seed go everywhere, but if you, you, again, you can go back and read the story or think about it, imagine it in your mind, and you'll notice that despite the recklessness of the farmer in terms of he throws it in all these strange places, wherever the seed goes, did you notice what happened? A plant came up. The seed did what the seed's supposed to do wherever it hit the ground. And now some of you astute people are going to be like, well, what about the bird? Because a bird came and ate it, right? Y'all know what, ha what happens when a bird eats something? After it eats it, give it some time. Someone wants to say, you don't have to say it in church. What goes in, yeah, it lands on your car. <laughs> like, what goes in comes out. And, you know, birds in many ways are one of God's intended farmers. They take seed from here and they move it over there with a little fertilizer on it. Everywhere the seed touches the ground, a plant is born, which is pretty stunning to me. What must this seed be that it grows even on the road, even in the rocks, even amongst thorns? The story is showing us that everywhere the seed goes, a plant grows. The seed goes everywhere, and it grows everywhere. The farmer's not crazy, as it turns out. He just knows he has an abundance of incredibly potent seed. He knows that he's got plenty of it, and wherever it goes, it will do what the seed is supposed to do. Wherever you look in the parable, the seed is doing what it's supposed to do, or it's about to. It's waiting for a movement from a bird, right? Everywhere you look, the seed is doing what it's supposed to do. What kind of seed grows in any soil? What kind of seed gets sown everywhere? We know this parable is so important because we get kind of insider information later in chapter 13 when Jesus is explaining. If you get confused at all about the parables, that's part of what they're supposed to do. Even the disciples pull Jesus aside and they're like, why are you talking like this? Nobody gets what you're saying. And so he'll give them interpretations. And Jesus, later in chapter 13, this is what he says the seed from the story is. He says it's the message about the kingdom. That is, it's God's word. So, he's saying the seed is the message of God's kingdom. Life with God is available now and it is near. That's the, the essence of the message of God. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the message of the kingdom of God. This message goes to everyone and it works everywhere. There is no kind of person... See, most people... 
at least where, you know, the Christianity I grew up with, this story was taught like in youth group, here are the kinds of soils, and here's how to know what kind of soil you are. You know, the emphasis was placed on you and your soil, what kind of life you've lived, your morality, your purity, the quality of your soil. And I think they don't call this the parable of the soil. Do you see that? It's the parable of the sower. It's about the man and the seed that he is sowing. It is a powerful seed that grows everywhere and works on everyone. Jesus is redefining the family of God. It is not people who are born in a certain way or live in a certain place. And if he had just come out and said, hey, y'all, the kingdom of God or the family of God is something new now, they probably would have killed him right on the spot. But instead, he tells them a story and he's sneaking behind their defenses and their long-held cultural beliefs and beginning to stir their imagination. The way he ends the parable gives us a clue as to why some of the plants never thrived. I want to make the point that everywhere the, the seed went, a plant grew. And we know, though, that everywhere the plant grew, it did not thrive. Jesus explains to us what is going on with that. So in verse 9, he says, Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Now, that, that maybe that doesn't seem very helpful to you. Uh, we've been talking for a long time now in our series on Matthew that it's important to pay attention to the structure of what Matthew is saying. Um, not just what he says, but the way he says it. And so at the beginning of this parable, Jesus says, look. He starts the parable by saying, look. And he ends the parable by saying, listen. Look and listen. It's something that you will see and hear in the ministry of Jesus over and over and over. He'll do something with his hands that you can see, and then he'll do something with his words that you can hear. So think about the healings in chapters 8 and 9. Just go look. It's, again, it's in your Bible. He'll heal somebody by touching, and then he'll heal somebody by speaking. Then he'll heal somebody by touching, then he'll heal somebody by speaking. John's disciples come up to him and say, John's not so sure if you're the Messiah or not while he's sitting there in prison. And Jesus says, tell him to look at what I've done and listen what I've said. Look and listen. Look and listen. Look at my works. Listen to my words. In each one of the instances where the plant didn't thrive, there's a failure of sight or a failure of hearing. Again, you can go look at this. In verse 21, it says, some people's problems distract them from the words and works of Jesus. So you have this thing with Jesus over here, but you've got this apparent crisis, and you get so focused on it like my kid's on the billy goat. That's all you can see. That's all you can stare at, and it's consuming your vision and all of your thoughts about Jesus, all of your remembrances of him or affections for him. It, you become totally oriented on this other thing. Some people's problems overwhelm them, and they have a failure of vision. They, they become overly focused on something, and their eyes move. Verse 22 says, some people's obsession with wealth and worry drowns out the voice of Jesus. We, we long, here's how I would describe most of American economics. If we had more of what we've already got, it would solve our problems. And so we continually chase, you've got money right now, but if we had a little bit more money, because I spent, I bought something I can't afford, so I'd need a little bit more, then I could have a little bit more car, a little bit more house. If we had more of what we've already got, then everything would be okay. And so the voice of worry and the voice of wealth are shouting at us to have more, or it could be better, whatever. And, and we stop hearing the voice of Jesus. Failures of vision, failures of listening. 
From there, Jesus makes it crystal clear in the interpretation what's so special about the soil that produces abundantly. Verse 23, he says, the, the abundant soil are those who truly hear and understand God's word. What a contrast to how Jesus describes some of the failures of the soil earlier in 13. He says they look, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. You see that look and listen theme again? They look, but don't see. They listen and don't hear. Jesus is saying those who thrive are the ones who look and listen. The, the, the seed, the plants that thrive, those are the ones who receive, who hear and understand God's word. Look and listen. This is the way. Look and listen. Look and listen. Practically, you have to receive this powerful seed. This cannot be a thought experiment. Parables are not meant to be interesting stories that you just think on. They're meant to move you towards action. And all of us, I don't care what your confession of faith is right now, take a moment and try to consider all of the reasons you may have to think there is no place for you in the kingdom of God. Some of you probably have pretty good reasons. Some of you probably made really bad decisions. And, you know, your life is not where you wanted it to be. Maybe it's your past, things that you've done, or maybe it's things that have been done to you, things that you didn't have a vote for, but have come to feel like such a part of your identity. Just think of a couple of the reasons you have to think or believe that there's no place for you in the kingdom of God. Maybe it's a secret you're keeping right now. If any of those thoughts or beliefs are keeping you from experiencing, not just confessing, but experiencing life in the kingdom, you've, your focus is somewhere other than on the power of the seed and the goodness of the sower. The message of the kingdom is this. Your place in the family of God is no longer based on your blood or your behavior, which is a radical new message. It's part of what got Jesus killed. It's not because of your Jewish lineage. It's not because of how well you've kept the law. It's not based on your blood or your behavior. Your place in the family of God is based on the blood and the behavior of Jesus. You don't need a specific kind of soil from a specific place. You need to receive the blood and the behavior of Jesus. Look and listen at what he has done for you. If Jesus' behaviors were as perfect as the scriptures say they are, if his blood has still been shed, there is room for you in the family of God. Unless you can somehow go back in time and uncrucify Jesus and unresurrect Jesus, there is still room for you in the kingdom of God. All of your qualifications have been met. If you trust Jesus, his work is credited to you, and his blood on the cross covers you. That's all you need to enter into a new life in a new family. The story is trying to, and I, can, I almost can feel it out here, some, the, but you don't know me, preacher. You don't know me. You're, I, don't, I don't know you. I don't know what you've lived. This story is trying to sneak behind all of your skepticism and reasons to believe that you are not good enough and maybe convince you like, yeah, I probably won't disagree with you that you're not good enough, 
But the story's trying to tell you that's not the point at all. It's not about whether or not you're good enough. It's whether or not you believe he is good enough and whether or not his work is good enough for you. The seed is powerful and it has been sown to you. It has been scattered onto your soil. If, from here on out, for the rest of your life, no one in this room has an excuse. You've heard the message of the kingdom of God. What will you do with it? Will you receive? Do you want to have a, a harvest that's 30, 60, 100 times what was planted? What does that mean? It sounds like a lot. I'm not precisely sure what it means. Do you want to have a fruitful life, an abundant life where you thrive? Well, look and listen. Look to the works of Jesus. Listen to the words of Jesus. Follow him. Real practically, okay, so I know we're all in different places here. One of the ways that we can do this is just to spend time with other Christians. We believe that if, if your faith is in Christ, the presence of Christ is inside of you. He dwells within you. So whenever you are around other Christians, you are literally in the presence of Christ. Maybe you've read that weird passage where Jesus says, wherever two or more are gathered, there am I with you. And wondered, like, does that mean he teleports in? Like two Christians come together? and they, It's like, no, he's, in the, he's embodied in another Christian. And whenever you're around another Christian, you're in the presence of Jesus. So prioritize gathering with his people. I know not every Sunday is fun, but what if you stop looking at it as like, will I be fed today? Is my favorite, will they sing my song? Well, whatever. If it was like, I want to get in the presence of Christ today. So I'm going to come and gather with God's people because I want to be in the presence of Christ. Uh, you can join a community group where you'll find other Christians there and they can get to know you better. Start serving in a ministry on Sundays or there's all kinds of stuff happening outside of Sundays. Whatever you need to do, you can just get in the presence of other Christians and watch what happens. Look at what he's done. Listen to what he says. Read the scriptures and learn how to hear the voice of Jesus. The Bible is, in, it's in so many ways, the language of God. One time, Pastor Bobby had a sermon. He said, if you want to hear the voice of God out loud, just ask somebody to read the Bible out loud to you. In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells the same story, and he describes the good soil this way. This is in Luke chapter 8. He says, those are people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest. Cling to it. Rest in the blood of Jesus. Don't read the Bible as some silly checklist to please God. I'm going to read the Bible so that my business goes better or whatever. I'm going to read my Bible so that God stays happy with me. This is God's story for you. This is God's invitation to come and experience his presence and learn how to live a new life and a new family. We read the Bible to hear the voice of God and how to live that life. The Ten Commandments come after God saves his people from slavery in Egypt, right? The Ten Commandments weren't a checklist <clears throat> for here's how you can get saved from Egypt. He's like, no, the Ten Commandments are so you people who are slaves can learn how to be free. Some of you guys, most of us, have been living, our focus has been on something for so long, we've been doing foolish things for so long that we just don't even know how to do something different. And so the scriptures teach us and invite us how to live a new life in this new family. If you do this patiently, here's something else that isn't popular in Christian circles. Most of our change takes a really long time. If it took 20 years for you to get messed up, give yourself at least 20 years to get not messed up. It takes a long time for new behaviors to feel normal. They cling to God's word and they patiently, patiently produce a huge harvest. Give yourself some time. 
most of the Christianity you do will look unimpressive, almost like a small seed that was thrown on a road. Like, ah, man, the stories are so powerful. I think about this all the time. Imagine somebody took a little acorn and dropped it on your driveway. Would you think twice about it? Would you call the fire department or a landscape company and be like, you got to get this acorn off. My whole house is at risk. You give that acorn a hundred years, who wins? The foundation of your home and your concrete driveway or the oak tree? Most of Christianity won't look impressive or obvious at first. If you give it time, you patiently endure, what can come of it is just hard for us to even imagine. Gather with God's people. Cling to God's word. Look and listen. You need this because many voices will distract you. Shiny objects will tempt you to look away. The billy goats will come. Many things that will try to steal your vision, close your ears. Worries about tomorrow, difficult circumstances will drown out the voice of Jesus. We must be a people who learn how to pray, hear the voice of Jesus, gather with God's people to experience his presence and see him, and go out like a farmer scattering seed everywhere we go, because we know wherever the seed goes, a new plant grows. So I, just, I guess I, I want to close by asking you, if you knew you no longer needed to prove yourself, that you no longer needed to earn God's approval or his entrance into your family, his family, if you knew you had nothing to prove, what would you do? If you knew you were loved, period, and no matter what that next decision you made was, would not change your safety or your lovability, if you knew it, what would you do? If you believed the power in your life, these are all versions of the same question. If you, knew, if you believed the power in your life came not from you, but from the power of the seed planted in you, what would you do? If you knew everywhere the seed went, it did something, who would you talk to about Jesus? If you knew you were okay, if you knew you were safe, if you knew all would be well, what would you do? Maybe you'd get baptized. Maybe you would change jobs. Maybe you would stop doing that thing. What would you do if you believed you had the very power of God working inside of you? We come to communion every week to look to the body of Christ, which is for you. We remember the night he was betrayed. Jesus thanked God. He broke a loaf of bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Isn't that something? My body for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. We get something to look at as we hear from his word. After the meal, he took a cup of wine in the same way and he said, this is my blood shed for you which seals your relationship with God. Drink this in remembrance of me. If you're wondering, well, how can you say that I'm safe? How can you say all will be well? How can you say that my lovability can't change? Because the body of Christ was still broken for you. The blood of Christ is still shed for you. And this is the promise. This is what makes you safe with God. So we look to the body of Christ. We look to the shed blood of Christ. If you want to experience new life in a new family, look and listen to Jesus. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. 
Uh, cups of wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left. You can use whichever, you, whichever you'd like, and there'll be two stations in the back. I'll pray for us, and then Christians come remember our hope together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.